about that, and he decided he was not going to stay. So he came up with an escape plan. At the Jefferson County Jail, the cell doors were electronic. At night, the guard could flip one centrally located switch and all the doors would lock automatically. Well, one night, before the cell doors were all locked for the night, Ritter jammed a wad of paper in his door, which prevented it from being locked. He also made up his bunk to make it look like someone was sleeping there so the guards wouldn't suspect anything when they made their rounds overnight. I know, this sounds like a plot to a really low-budget movie. But Ritter's plan actually worked. He was able to sneak out of his cell and escape from the jail. Chances are he'd been there a few times before this, so it helped that he knew the layout of the place. The next morning, he was discovered missing. Assistant District Attorney Glenn Hammonds made a public statement to announce that they had an escapee and that authorities were on the hunt for him. Of course, he was soon captured and brought back to the jail to finish his sentence, with some more time added because of the escape. And you'd think that maybe after that, he'd get things figured out and start making some smarter decisions about his life. But 11 years later, he was back in the news. My guest today, Garrett, had an unexpected encounter with Daryl Dean Ritter. And neither of them could have predicted how it would end. Real people in unreal situations. There is a man standing in front of me in my bedroom. My friend has been shot. I'm in the literally inside the river and I'm inside my car. He had told me multiple times that he was going to set himself on fire. If you say my name or try to look at me, I'm going to kill you. And he was just sobbing. He said, Mom, Mom, tell me you're going to be okay. And I jumped on the hood of the car and I held on. And I looked into the garage and he was hanging from the rafters. I had somebody standing on my neck. He's better to me dead. I want him dead. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The store that you worked in, what kind of... Was it a restaurant or a grocery store? Or what what was that? Brahms is an ice cream store, but also it's a fast food restaurant, and they sell burgers and fries and shakes. But also they're a bit of a grocery store where you could come in and pick up some small produce items. And 
they had their own farm in Oklahoma, so you could get their milk or their ice cream in the produce section as well. So they had things like ground beef or uh, potatoes or bread, that sort of thing, in addition to it being an ice cream parlor. Kind of a one-stop shop for whatever you need. Yeah, it's a nice little uh, community thing because they would hand out coupons and things for children who read a certain amount of books. They could cash it in and get a free ice cream cone, or uh, they had a lot of nice flavors and things. And they had a lot. It is a it's a nice place, I think, for uh, families to go. They had a kids playground section in the front, so you could go and swing on the swings or go down the slide and things like that. And what was your job there? I Got my job there at age 17, I think. And I worked there for about a year up until the event. And I, that was my second job. And I worked as a grill cook and I did the dishes. And I also would dip ice cream. So I would work in the front with the dippers and ask people what they wanted. I would make the shakes or I would make freezes or sundaes and these sort of things. My shift was probably in always in the evening because I was still in school, but I also did the weekends and I'd probably work 15 to 20 hours a week. Take us through what happened. This happened in the evening, right? Take us, take us through what, what went on that night. So as far as I knew, it was an ordinary shift. I came in and that night I normally do grill and I'm cooking patties and making the buns and keeping track with the orders on the screen and put them in a bag and give them to someone else who handles the money. But this night, I'm going to do dishes. And so the grill section is maybe 15 feet away from the dri- the dish sink, which is a large sink, you know, with uh, the spray handle and uh, the deep wells and all that. So I go in on my regular shift. And I remember getting in trouble a few times for it, but I would wear headset earbuds that would come in with a string and they'd go down and I'd have it. Uh, clipped to my waist a little. It was called an iPod Nano. Mm-hmm, I remember those. Yeah, it was about the size of a large postage stamp. No screen and just the buttons for left, right, and all that. And so I remember I was listening to music in my headphones and just sort of jamming, doing the dishes. At the time, I was listening to more metal things, and I was into a band called Deer and Gray, and they were a Japanese metal band. I didn't understand the lyrics, obviously. But they had good energy, and they were they were good for getting through a shift of wa- washing dishes. I was washing the dishes. I remember working with uh, my favorite crew. It was all of my favorite coworkers. You know, we had a lot of chats and things. But I remember working at the dish pit, and everything else I sort of forget up to this point because it was so ordinary. But I'm doing dishes, and it's midway through the shift. What time was it at this point? Right. So I get in at about 4.30 or 5. And so it's probably about 7 o'clock. Something caught my eye and I turned to the right and I saw a man with a broom. And instinctively, I just turned back to where I was. And I turned back again and did a double take. He was probably 10, 15 feet away when I first saw. And when I looked back again, he was much closer and he had a broom and he also had a knife. And his face, he had like blood on his face. He was a middle-aged man, gray hair, stubbly beard. And from a distance, I saw his eyes glare at me. And I remember them being ice blue. 
because that's one of the things that stuck with me. But as he got close, I didn't, I was frozen. And the first thing he said was do what I say and nobody gets hurt. And his arm reached around me and just grasped, grasped me with my neck in his elbow and his, uh, and the blade, this is his right hand and his blade up near my ear and my throat. And so he backed up and he dragged me towards an opening in the kitchen. In this kitchen, it's laid out so at the front, from the lobby, you see ice cream, the wells where they dip out the ice cream, and then behind the worker would be the little shake machines and things like that. But you could peer even past that and you could see the grill cooks. And so he dragged me to that space where you could see, the whole lobby could see me. And he shouts out, this boy's going to die tonight. And he just shouted out to nobody in particular. And I wasn't aware at this point because I was wearing headphones, but he'd already caused a commotion. Apparently, he had stolen a vehicle from another county where he was residing, and he had been driving in a high-speed chase away from the police. And I remember being told by somebody, police or somebody, that he, uh, he had a, he'd left that county and he was going into my county and that the police were going to just catch him there because they didn't want to cause a commotion, I guess, chasing someone down the highway when they could get him in our county. And Duncan is a town with a big highway. It's not a big highway. It's big for the area. It's pretty congested because it's the major highway in the area, but it goes right through the center of town and it quickly deescalates in speed from full highway, 65 miles an hour down to 30 uh, right in front of a Walmart. And then that's, there's an intersection with a stoplight and then to the West is Walmart at this intersection and to the East is Brahms where my store is. He must've had a car wreck with uh, someone who was turning from Walmart out and the cars were totaled and he got out of this car and he went across the intersection straight into Brahms where behind Brahms was a, uh, uh, golf course and sometimes I wondered why he didn't go out and just try to run away but instead he went inside to the store and when he came inside he immediately went behind the bar is what I'm told and he grabbed ice cream dippers and he was he was shaking them at people and screaming at people and shouting things and so everybody ran away it sounds like this is somebody that suffers from mental illness yeah, I, I would have to say that's what it sounds like to me. I seeing him be shaky and seeing his his hearing him slur his speech and things. It reminded me of someone who was drunk and distraught. But anyway, he from there, he definitely must have been struggling with something. Um, I remember being told also that he was he was not taking a certain medication, but this could have been rumors right, of something. Right. So when he came in the store, there were customers and there were other workers. What, why do you think he targeted you? I would have to say it's because as soon as he grabbed the ice cream dippers, all the people working in the front were teenagers, high school students, except for the managers who were in the little office doing the numbers. And so he's shaking the ice cream dippers and they run away. And there's several double door sort of accesses to the ice cream space so it was easy for people to run away and so he i'm assuming he was gonna assault somebody he must have been intent on assaulting somebody because he grabbed a knife the knife is 
sort of like a steak knife you would use at Outback. You know, the bread knife, steak knife that's got a black handle. I, I hesitate to call it a bread knife because it was a serrated edge, but it's not a steak knife because it's not big. But it's still very sharp and it's and it's uh, made for sawing, you know, it's a serrated blade. When I'm at the dish pit and I look over once and I see him, I saw the broom. But when I look back, I saw a broom in the left hand and the, the knife in his right hand. And he said, do what I say. Nobody's going to get hurt. He wraps me up and he drags me to this open space so that people can see through the lobby. And he's he's holding me pretty tight and I can hear him shout right by my left ear. He's shouting, this boy's going to die tonight. And everybody screams. And people start running. The co-workers I can see. I see Ashley. I see Ashley run to the right. And I see April to the left. And immediately he shouts out, get down, get on the ground. And he's pointing at April. And he says, get on the ground. And she screams. she's got a really high-pitched voice. Like almost a baby voice. The highest voice of anybody I ever known. And she's like, ah. you know, she just, she looks like a chihuahua that's about to pee. You know, she's bouncing up and down. And he shouts at her repeatedly. And even the coworkers, they chime in, try to say, April, get down. And she runs out of the front door. I remember feeling embarrassed that, that my coworker didn't follow these commands. And I felt, I felt sympathy for her knowing that she was, that she was about to put me in a dangerous place. And I felt awkward, so weird trying to like wanting her to do what he said and wanting and it, I wasn't really afraid of myself still at this point. Well, see, that's the, that's the weird thing. Like if, you know, somebody like that, that's so unstable, you don't know if, if somebody doesn't do what he wants it, that couldn't, that could mean your life. Yeah. Yeah. She, she was really bothered by it because she didn't know how to handle it, obviously. And she felt really bad later. We talked about it later, but as soon as he shouts these things and she's, she squeals and runs away. Other coworkers, they they immediately they shout like, "Stop! Let him go!" But past that, I see a man stand up from the seat uh, in the lobby, and he run he comes forward, and he's an undercover police or not undercover. He's an off-duty cop, and he looks like one too. He's got his wraparound shades on the top of his head. He's got like a Hawaiian shirt and khaki shorts all the way down to some uh, Birkenstocks kind of sandals. He just looks like an off-duty cop. And he immediately puts his hands up, and he just starts to negotiate right away, saying, you know, let him go. You don't have to do this. And I don't remember the specific words he was shouting back, but it was a lot of, you know, fuck you, and he's going to die and do what I say, and a lot of get on the ground. And he's tugging at my arm, tugging at my neck with his right arm, and and I can feel the blade's serrated edge poking me and like all the particular spots on my neck at some point though he decides to start backing down the the corridor towards the back of the store and i should explain the layout of the store here it's a bit like a seven the number seven where the tall part would be the grill and the drive-through window at the front and in the back would be another drive-through window uh, and a mop sink and then the other part of the seven, the L part, or we could say an L then, is the the freezer where you store the milk and these produce items and eggs and things like that. And so there's an exit 
behind the mop sink that you can't see from where he's dragging me. So just to set that up. There's also an entrance into the frozen section from the lobby, which would then be able to exit right into right where we are, which he can't see that either. So he grabs me and he starts marching to the back of the store, which he's never been in. And I remember it being very difficult to march backwards on a greasy floor while he's dragging me. And I'm being afraid that he's going to think I'm resisting. I don't want him to think I'm resisting. He drags me and he's not really talking to me. I think he's saying, come on, you know, this sort of thing. He drags me past the dish sink, past the, the stock racks where we have like cans of chili, cans of pickled jalapenos, buns. And then there's the window for the first window in the drive through And there's nobody there. I can see as he drags me past that. And we get back to the very back of the store and it's the mop sink. And he says, we're going to get down. We're getting down on the ground. And he tells me to lay exactly on top of him. And this, all, this part seemed really strange to me. So I don't, it's, I don't really know how we got down on the ground with him gripping me in this way. But I also know I wasn't resisting anything. So as he laid down on the ground, he laid flat on his back. And he told me to put my legs on his legs and my body on his body. And it obviously would be to cover him as a body shield. Were you on top of him face up or face down? Face up. He hasn't changed his position with his grip. And he's shaky. And I can smell his breath. And he feels like he's drunk. I don't know that I smell him drunk, but he's warm. You know, I can feel his grip and his knife. And uh, he seems like he's in a desperate state. And he's shouting. Shouting out because the other, the police officer begins to follow us back. As you go back down the store, one side of the stock rack faces, you know, near the grill on the other side um, is another corridor, but it's all one big hallway. And the, the stack of the rack is like 15 feet tall. So you can't really see behind it on one side or the other. It's just this large rack, but you can peer through it a bit through the different missing items. As he's coming back or as we lay down, I can see the police officers coming closer and he gets into the hallway and his hands are up and he's saying, you know, you don't have to do this. Just let the boy go. These sorts of things. What do you want? What can we do? And the man starts shouting out to get a certain judge on the line. I don't remember the judge's name, but he's shouting out, get this judge. I need to talk to this judge. And the cop says, all right, all right, we're going to get him. Just don't do anything crazy, you know? And he's like, I'm going, I'm going to go do it. And he leaves. And the man is there holding me. And he tells me, shout for help. Call out for help. And it's, it's humiliating. It's embarrassing. I don't want to. So he's, he keeps saying it. Scream. And so I, I just say, help. And he tells me to scream. And so I scream louder. And I emphasize a, a quake that wasn't really there. Because I'm not. It's shocking and it's horrifying, but I'm not really afraid. I'm, it's awkward. It's humiliating. And he makes me shout out help. What can I say? When I plan a week of meals, I like to have some variety. And with hundreds of meals to choose from, Cook Unity has that part covered. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. 
Not too long ago, I tried the cauliflower and chickpea coconut curry. I love curry anyway, but even if you're not normally a fan, you should try this one. It's one of the dishes prepared by Chef Michelle Bernstein here in Florida. She has a couple of restaurants here, and she's also a judge on the TV show Chopped, so you may have already seen her. But aside from the taste, it's the convenience. Because let's face it, even if I knew how to cook, I don't have time. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when mealtime rolls around, I pick out what I feel like eating, and within just a few minutes, it's ready. No prep and no cleanup. And when I say variety, I'm talking over 350 different meals from dozens of chefs. You can decide based on a chef you like, or protein content, or just what you prefer. The menus are updated weekly, so there's always something new. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of CookUnity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. After a moment or two, he... I think the cops must have showed back up. He must have came back out. And maybe there were even more police officers off-duty in the lobby because it didn't take long for some people to show up. And I see there's more than one after 10 minutes or so. Right. Somebody, by this time, somebody would have called 911 to let them know. And so cops are going to be on the way. Certainly people were calling for help before he ever came to me because it was some disorderly behavior on there, shaking dippers and (laughs) causing a scene. So as he's got me laid down, after he's got me to call out for help, his hands are wrapped around my neck and he reaches up with his hand, his left hand, and he puts his finger in my mouth and tries to pull on my cheek towards the right as if to fish hook me. And it's, it's gross and it's weird. And I don't know what the point is because he's not hurting me, but I guess he wants to look like he's extremely dangerous. And then his hand goes from my mouth, drags spit onto my face, and he rubs his hand on my eyeball. And he begins to try to scrape at my eye socket. I'm assuming this is to look especially dangerous. And he's trying to fish hook me and and claw at my eye. And police are there, and they're shouting, suddenly, don't, you know, don't do that. Stop, let him go. I can now see, after these three things happen... He's laid me down, he's made me call out for help, and then also the fish hook and the, the eye gouge. At this point, I can peer through the the cans, and I can see armored men with big guns. I don't know if he can see them, but I can see them aiming through the cans. I see one, at least, with like a shotgun or something, and another one with another gun to the right, and they're both coming straight at me. So they're probably... 30 feet, 25 feet away down the hall. While the the man with the, you know, <laughs> the off-duty cop outfit is <laughs> standing there with his hands up and they're trying to negotiate. He's still shouting about get back and get a, get the 
get the judges and things like that. I remember being on my back while I'm on top of him and I see these officers in the back, the SWAT team, and I realize that he can't see, but just the room we're in, the little mop sink room is about a five by five or six by six room. And it's just walled on three sides. And I know that directly on the other side of the wall is the back door. And so if I can see people in front of me, then they're right there too. Somebody must have told the police there's a back entrance. And so there, if they had a moment, they would bust around that door and they'd be right in front of us. So I know that there's cops there. And I know that they must have entered through the, uh, through the frozen section as well. Because there, there's more than one way to get to this spot. As this happens, and he shouts out to them, and, and I can see the police are all getting closer. He's telling them to stop getting closer, but they keep getting closer. And this is bothering me because I'm thinking, this guy's unstable. And he's saying stop, and they're getting closer. But I don't really see how it's going to resolve itself because they're all, narrow, they're all closing in. And now the cops are probably... 15, 20 feet away, and I can see all the guns, and I can see, you know, all these sorts of things. My hands, they were cupped around his wrist, as he hasn't changed position this whole time. My hands are cupped around his wrist, and I, I don't want him to think I'm resisting, but also, my grip is tight, and I'm holding, I'm pulling him back so that he's not choking me, but also, his blade is still touching my throat on the left side, basically across my jugular. At some point, while I'm holding him and the cops are closer, I feel him loosen his grip from the knife and grab the other, grab with his left hand. And then a series of quick thoughts passes through my mind. I'm suddenly thinking, I can get away. If I grab the blade, then I can, I can get away. And I think all these thoughts of, I don't want him to cut my throat if I resist because I'm a singer for a band. And that's, that was my main thought is if he cuts me, I'll be disfigured and maybe he'll cut my throat and I can't sing. Actually, I already have a scar on my throat. I have a prominent scar from a trach when I was an infant. And so one of my thoughts is I don't want to be ugly with a second scar in my throat. That'd be crazy. And then I remember feeling I don't want to get cut on my throat because I sing not, not well, but it'd be even worse if he cut my throat. You know what I'm, I'm thinking right now, I don't sing, but I would still not want to get cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, for whatever reason, I wasn't particularly terrified, more humiliated, and I definitely don't see a way out. But at this point, once he switched the blade from his right hand around my throat to his left hand, which I know is bent at a tight, acute angle, I realize he has no leverage on my arm or with the knife. So in a quick moment, I release my right hand and I grab the blade and I'm going to get free. And I immediately thought, as soon as I grab the blade, time stops. And I go, I should let go. I shouldn't have done this. He's going to cut me. Can I let go and go back to where I was? And will things just go like they were? I don't know why I didn't, but obviously that would have been <laughs> the worst thing I could have done. So instead, in that moment, I grab the blade by the metal and I squeeze and I turn my wrist and I break his lock because he's got no leverage. 
And all in one motion, I grabbed, I turned the blade, and I, I spin over to my belly. And I must have had my left hand able to reach past his torso, touch the floor, and I kick back. And I throw the blade down, in, like just right, right in that moment, right in the floor, right to the mop sink. And I slide back. And I must have slid on this greasy floor five feet, right in between the two legs of a SWAT team officer. And I can tell there's three or four of them now. And as I get there, he's, he's sort of propped himself up, the man, and he gets shot right in the heart and the chest and the stomach. Three shots instantly. And they all yell at me, go, go, get out. So I stand up and I start to run. And as I get, as I start turning the corner to get out from behind the stock shelf, I remember feeling this, this really strange, elation at being able to escape there's an odd humor in it because as i ran i mentioned the greasy floor because i i i let my feet slip as i ran sort of like a cartoon character whoop, 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 as i turned the corners i don't know i must have been just immature to to think that as i run away from my own safety it's over but i wanted to slip and slide that's i don't know why that happened but i always remembered that in my mind, it basically went whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> <laughs> that is so interesting. Yeah. It's a strange, bizarre point. But as I, as I sprint out into the lobby, there's these automatic doors that are pinned open. And I run through the threshold. And a man outside with another gun basically swings his gun at me from the butt and just barely stops from hitting me and says, get on the ground, get on the ground. And so I'm on the ground. The, po the police have me on the ground and they hold me put my arms behind my back. And then they shout into the, the radio that he's out. And then somebody must have said that's, that was the hostage, you know, cause he's, he said, okay, get up, get up. Right. Cause they wouldn't have any way of knowing if they didn't have a description of you or the other guy. Yeah. I think somebody immediately after the shots, somebody must've shouted out, he's running out or he's, he's getting out something like that. That was. You know, the pronoun game where you just say an it and a he and nobody knows who it or he is. So I'm running out of the door and I've been told to get on the ground and then I get told to get up and it's dark outside because it's December. Even so, it's maybe like 745 or maybe eight o'clock, something like that. And so it's dark outside. The parking lot is full of police, ambulance, fire trucks, and they the police officer marches me over to my group of people, my coworkers over there at the edge of the parking lot. And I don't go back to the building now. So we go over there and I'm still on this weird mindset of I escaped. I'm good. You know, so I'm in a somewhat chipper mood. I'm, I'm excited to be free, but my voice is shaking and it's bizarre and everybody's going to talk to me. And so Ashley gives me a cigarette. And I don't smoke. I smoked that menthol. And then I smoked for 10 more years, actually. And uh, I just quit a couple years ago. So I've been not smoking for about three years. Wow. Congratulations on that. But what a way to start, though. Yeah. Yeah. She gave me a cigarette and I appreciate it. Thank you. But <laughs> it cost me a lot of money since then. So she gave me that cigarette. And I talked to my, co my managers who were apologizing as if they did something. And we all get together and they're all saying, are you okay? And in April looks at me and bursts into tears because she's 
very distraught about not being able to manage her own fear when it was crucial earlier. And I tell her, it's okay, you know, everybody was afraid. So we're about to leave the area now. We get to the cop car and they, they, they drive me to the police station by myself. And then they sit me in a room. This is how it goes. I don't remember the spaces in between, but I remember getting to the police station and they left us me alone with four or five or six of the other people that were working that night. And I remember Ashley and April and Daryl and, and, uh, and a few other people were in there and everybody's staring at me and they're all asking me questions and I'm lighthearted, jovial and making sort of, uh, quips being clever. And eventually someone tells me to go to the bathroom. And then as I go into the bathroom, I look in the mirror, I'm covered in blood and I haven't been cut. So he was bleeding all over me. And I realized how macabre those, those jokes must have felt to the other people because, uh, I bet it was it, after being traumatized, knowing that their friend and coworker is trapped. And then when they see me, I'm joking, but I'm covered in blood. I bet that was uh, awfully bizarre. I'm sure they remember that. How was he bleeding? Was that from the car crash? He was bleeding from the car crash. It was a pretty serious wreck from what I remember. I don't, I don't remember hearing that anybody else was hurt, but uh, that part might've got lost. He was going, I think something like, 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour and smashed into another car. And so he was bleeding on a, you know, he was bleeding all over from his own face. And that's, that's where he was bleeding on me from. When you were sitting there with your coworkers kind of joking around, I'm wondering if you really were okay and you were just kind of back to normal or if you were still kind of in a state of shock and the humor was just a coping mechanism. What do you think about that? Hmm. Yeah. I don't think it was a coping mechanism. I think I was reveling in attention because I was never particularly afraid. Honestly, I was mostly sympathetic and embarrassed. And I, the reason I didn't want to fight back was not only because I didn't want to get hurt, but also because he felt so desperate. And so he felt crazed and i didn't want to put him in a position where he'd be gosh you know embarrassed i did, he was already somewhere really humiliating and i felt like if i fought back that he would be that it'd be worse for us not just him but me i thought if i let him have the control then we'd be able to get through this because maybe he's you know maybe in his in his wisdom holding me hostage was the right way to not hurt me because he's already in so deep. And, uh, I don't remember being particularly concerned after I got free. I wasn't afraid. I wasn't spooked. I wasn't afraid to sleep. You know, he didn't have me scared of shadows or anything like that because it felt so freakish. And when he grabbed me, and held me and I didn't want to resist. I didn't want to make him think I was fighting. And when he drug me backwards, I wanted to stay in step so that I didn't lag behind. And when he had me on the ground, I didn't talk to him. And I, he told me to shout. So I shouted and he made me put my legs on him. 
And eventually, I somehow decided that this isn't going anywhere. I need to be free because it's dangerous. And I was afraid for my hand and my throat and those things then. But I wasn't, I wasn't horrified. I was petrified, though. Moving would have been scary. Doing something outside of the ordinary would have been scary. But doing what he said felt like the way to avoid any real trouble. It's really interesting to me that you were, I mean, you're in this position where your life is literally in danger, but your part of your concern was for him. I mean, that's, that's a truly empathetic person. Yeah. I remember feeling those sorts of thoughts and it made me question why I would defer to authority in those ways. Why would I be willing to let a crazed madman grabbed me up when so many people like coworkers when trying to bond with me said, why didn't you run? I would have hit him. I would have beat him up, you know? All right, tough guy, but he grabbed me. And then what do you do? He consoled me by saying, do what I say and nobody's going to get hurt. But that was a lie. Cause he then said within five seconds, this boy is going to die. And so, uh, you know, I kind of made that mistake <laughs> when I trusted him. I remember when he grabbed me and took me all the way back and all the things played out. Looking back at the reason I felt sympathetic, I mean, he was so desperate, but maybe in my heart, I felt like, like I was trapped in his suicide by cop and I didn't know if I could get in the way of it or, or if I did, what would happen. But ultimately, you know, him being shot was a culmination of those things. That's sort of a, how it plays out when you do something violent, I guess. But, but I was, that's what I was thinking of is this is his desperate downward spiral. And I was stuck in it. He wasn't there to hurt me. He was hurting himself. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. I remember seeing him get shot and the first bullet, I, he felt dead. Just, I was already staring at him and it was, you know, it was pow, 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 instant. But, but I remember thinking right away, he's dead. He died in from the first shot. And part of what stuck with me is I took the knife away. I know that. I know that when I got away that he was disarmed and they shot him. And that always stuck with me and bothered me a bit because they didn't need to shoot him. At least that's what I thought. I remember being told that they were afraid he'd cut me. Okay, well, shooting him doesn't save the bleeding boy. So I never understood. But I did learn later at some point that the man who pulled the trigger had also shot a dog in the past. Maybe that maybe he's traumatized by the actions of his job that or he was he was ready to to do his job. So in some way uh, I always felt like he didn't need to be shot because I'd, I'd taken his knife away. Yeah. On the other hand, it's easy to look back in hindsight and, and view all that not being in the moment, but definitely. 
especially since I acted fast and I slid out of the way. That instant moment, maybe they couldn't tell he didn't have a knife. Or maybe he began to stand up and reached for the knife because I was doing, you know, my spin maneuver. Maybe I didn't have a great view of his. Maybe he was coming after me in that half a second. But I recall that I slid away and it was instantly shot. So this happened in a pretty small town. This must have been the big news of the day. It was uh, on everybody's mind, I think, because the town has about 25,000 people. So not very big. and. uh Brahms is right in the middle of it, and I'm a high school student. I went to the school the next day, and I had a little bit of a, I had a cut in my finger, so I still have that. I have a cut in my finger, in the fold of my finger, but I had a little bit of scratches on my neck as well, because while he didn't slice me, he had had the blade up against my neck, and it left some abrasions and some marks. And I remember going, and everybody would tell me to look to my right so they could see my neck. And I remember going to the office and saying, I'm going to take a couple of days off of school. I was with my parent. Actually, yeah, that part's interesting. Right afterwards, I went from the police station. I, I guess they went and took me back to my house. Somebody did. And I was alone and there was nobody there. So I had to call my dad because I lived with my father. And I called him just to tell him, hey, something happened tonight. And I got held hostage in this violent situation, but I'm okay now. I don't know how you to respond to that uh, as a father, but he eventually showed back up and I called my mother and told her too. And since I didn't live with her and it was so traumatic, she wanted to come up and she picked me up for a few days. And so I, I didn't go to work or school for three days. And then I decided that that's plenty because I wasn't particularly bothered. And I went back to work and the store was still running and store was still open. And uh, everything continued at school. Sometimes people would ask me questions um, because it was the thing that people might be talking about. Or that, that might be the thing they might know me for. I was never contacted by anybody from, any, from the family or any lawyers or anything like that. But I did have a class with a, uh, one of his family members. And I didn't know that until I'd talked to her about what was happening this coming week. And she mentioned that she was going to go to her uncle's funeral. And somehow, some way I knew it was him. I don't remember what she might've said his first name or something, but we, we didn't, we didn't go on to talk about, Hey, that was the guy that, you know, cause I, I felt sympathetic thinking that he didn't need to be shot and things like that. Did she ever know that you were the hostage? I think everybody knew because I had the cuts on my neck. And people wanted to talk to me about it. And I had friends that that were loud. So I'm sure that she awkwardly sat on the other side of the class. And she must have known. Yeah, what, I'm sure it was probably a little bit embarrassing for her, too. Yeah, I bet so. Since it was her family that did this. At the time, I I thought whether or not I, I wanted to go to the funeral because I felt sympathetic. But I, I chose not to because I, you know, it was probably not my place. I didn't want anybody to make any scene or anything. So. That's probably a good idea. Yeah. Probably a good idea. So you haven't had any recurring trauma or anything from this experience? The one moment that specifically sticks out was related to the event. I mostly was unbothered, except I did feel some shock for a while seeing people with who looked just like him. Middle aged man 
rough skin from working and blue eyes, like super light blue eyes is what stuck out. And I remember being uh, in the driver's seat of my car on 81, the same highway runs through Duncan. And I pull up to a stoplight when another car pulls up to my left and a man looks out and he looks similar and his eyes lock with mine. And I'm a, I think he's going to yell at me. I think he's going to get out and walk over. And I, I remember staying still in the car and it was just like before, honestly, where if he would have done anything, then I would have been captive. But then the light turned green and he drove away and I didn't. And, uh, he uh, he wasn't going to shout at me. He was just a man looking. That was the most that I'd been struck by the trauma was basically that one moment. I also went on to uh, to take his name. I used his last name in a small project with a, a musician friend. And we had a little jam band. And we went by the name Ritter just because it has a story built into it. And I like the way it sounded. And I guess I must have been, it must have been on my mind more than I wanted to admit at the time. I, I just can't help but think that if you, on, on that day while you were working, and as you said, it's just a routine shift, if you had not had the earbud in and you would yeah. have heard, if you would have heard him talking and yelling prior to when he came to you, I wonder how this whole thing would have turned out differently, maybe. Yeah, could have. I'm I'm pretty sure I was the only one not paying attention because <laughs> everybody else was in the lobby looking at the grill. Everybody else was out there looking in. And uh, I'm assuming that everybody heard the commotion and I was the only one listening to heavy metal. Key takeaway, be aware of your surroundings. Yeah. yeah. At least you came out okay in it. And we should mention... You, you've already mentioned that you're a musician and some of your music is online. How can people listen to that? Uh, yes, thank you. I am uh, just a hobby musician, but I do put my music up on SoundCloud and I use the name GM Radio X and you can find my work. It's Beats, Lo-Fi and Vaporwave with a country twist. So if you want a little country twist on your Vaporwave, you can check it out there. Sounds good. Well, we'll put a link for that in the show notes for this episode as well, so people can go there and, and listen if they would like to. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for having me. At the time of this incident, Daryl Dean Ritter was a three-time convicted felon with a long history of violence, including police standoffs. His last conviction for assault and battery with a deadly weapon resulted in him spending seven years in prison. He'd only been out for less than a year. The car he was driving that night, the one he crashed in front of Garrett's store while being chased by police, was stolen. Following the incident, there was an investigation by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, and it was determined that the shooting was justified. The district attorney made that announcement public stating that the officers were well prepared by their training and that they did everything exactly as they should have. All right, I've got a few things we need to talk about before we get to the listener story. First up, I'll be at a couple of podcasting conferences in the next couple of months. I'll be attending Podcast Movement Evolutions in Los Angeles 
which is March 23 to 27. So that's coming up just a few weeks. Then in May, I'll be at PodFest Expo here in Florida, in Orlando. That's going to be May 26 to 29. I love going to these conferences, especially since we've not been able to for the past couple of years. It's just so great to be surrounded by lots of like-minded and creative people. I highly recommend it. So if by chance you'll be at either of those events, let me know so we can connect. And aside from the big annual conferences, we have the local meetup here in the Tampa Bay area every month on the second Tuesday of each month. That's the Florida Podcasters Association monthly meetup. So if you're in Florida, message me and I'll get you the details for that too. And we have a voicemail from a listener who was originally from Haiti, then moved to Denver. Bonjour Scott, je t'aime beaucoup. Um, I love you so much. This year has been extremely, extremely tough. And your voice and podcast helped me get through it. Um, I live in Haiti, but also Denver. And while in Haiti, I have a lot of my family who have passed away due to COVID and also the political unrest in the city. But whenever I go back home to Haiti, I downloaded all of your your podcasts and it was all I listened to on the plane and also while I was there. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much for helping me get through things. And it has been very encouraging and I will continue to listen and send your podcast to others as well. Thank you so much. Je t'aime beaucoup. Merci pour tout ce que Au revoir, Scott. Oh, and my name is Jenny. And if you'd like to call in your comments, that would be awesome. You can just call the podcast voicemail line at 727-386-9468. And that line is always voicemail. You can call anytime, day or night. And guess what? If you want to, you can send me a text message at that same number. Either way, I always love to hear from you. And I'd love to have you on the Zoom chat this coming Sunday. If you're a supporter of the show, you'll get the invitation. And we always have a great time, so I'm looking forward to that. You can be a part of that by supporting the show at whatwasthatlike.com support. And now we have this week's listener story. This one is from my friend Vincent. He does a daily podcast called the Total Life Freedom Podcast. And yes, I said daily. Each episode is less than 10 minutes. He's got almost a thousand episodes out now. And it's usually the first thing I hear when I head out for my morning bike ride. And he's also a listener to my podcast, of course. So when I heard this story about his professional photography business, I thought, hey, that's a really good listener story. Because it talks about the value of storytelling which you and I love. So this is from Vincent's podcast at totallifefreedom.com, and I hope you enjoy it. Stay safe. I'll see you in two weeks. We don't remember the fact checkers. We remember the storytellers. Just look around. Think about the people that you quote. Think about what you can't wait to tell your friend. Think about when you go to an event. I don't come back and say, here are the stats that I learned. Here's the order in which they presented it. I say, check out this story that I heard. And within those stories are the facts and lessons. So many people get this backwards. Storytelling 
is how you stand out. And storytelling is how you're remembered. I'm gonna wrap this up with a story from my career that allowed us to stand out and expand our reach, our influence, and our income because of not only being able to tell stories, but to bring stories together and to know when to do it. Now, I've told a lot of photography stories in that part of my career because there's so much meaning to it. So many hard lessons were learned during those times. And two things I did was shoot sports and shoot weddings. My wife and I, Elizabeth, did the weddings together. Sports, I did on my own. They can't sound much different, except they're both kind of action-packed. But you would think that someone that shoots the brutal, blood-spitting, hard-hitting, board-crunching game of hockey would have little connection to the pristine world of weddings. Weddings where little girls have dreamed of that perfect romantic day since they were seven. You would also think that brides want to see nothing but the beautiful details of their perfect wedding day reflected back at them by the photographer that they were choosing. Deep into our wedding photography career, I met with a bride and her dad about her upcoming nuptials. Our approach to meeting with a bride was kind of simple. I brought two briefcases, both with a beautiful modern and custom designed wedding album. Those albums allowed us to show two full weddings start to finish, displaying not only our storytelling abilities, but the way we captured moments, the way that we saw light, and the quality of our albums. But one evening, before I was to meet with a potential client, I picked up a copy of a magazine that I'd been impatiently waiting for for a few days. It was an issue of Sports Illustrated, but not just any issue of Sports Illustrated. It was the issue that, after years of trying, had one of my images prominently displayed. You see, a few months earlier, I'd shot a picture of Pittsburgh Penguins superstar Sidney Crosby that was selected by their editors to be the main two-page wide photograph that would lead off a feature story that they wrote about him. I couldn't even contain my excitement because Sports Illustrated was one of my favorite magazines growing up, probably the favorite magazine of mine. And as a photographer, it was one of my biggest dreams to get a prominent spot in that magazine. When I got the copy in my hand, I stared at it way longer than I should have. I thought back to all the years where I made no money in the industry. I made a grand total of $20,000 in my first six years of shooting, including my time at school. So many emotions flooded my head as I stared at that paper. Wanting to show my friend later on, I put one of the copies in one of the briefcases that held our albums. So I'm at this meeting this night with the bride and her family. Her parents were there and she seemed to really enjoy our work. Now the conversation was good, but by no means did I get the vibe that this was something that they were absolutely gonna book. Sometimes you just know. We can tell by their language when they're gonna book us. They just need to meet us in person just to make sure that we're not total lunatics before they sign the check and the contract. But this meeting wasn't the case. She made it clear that they had met with a handful of photographers and they would make their decision once they evaluated all the options. At the end of the meeting, as I put the album back into the case, I saw the Sports Illustrated at the bottom and I had an idea. Completely unscripted, I said, hey, would you like to see something cool? And they all agreed. I reached in, pulled out the magazine and showed them my image. You shot that, the bride asked. I went into full storytelling mode. I told them the entire story, including how I had such a bad back problem that I almost didn't even make it to that game. I could hardly walk and I was awaiting a possible surgery, but I couldn't turn down this assignment. It was with a new agency and I wouldn't get future work if I said no. I then told the story about how because of this back pain, I got no sleep the night before and I showed up at the arena realizing that not only did I forget to bring my camera batteries, but one of the two cameras that I brought was a broken one that was supposed to be sent into the shop. The entire afternoon was a comedy of errors on my part and it kept leading down a darker, more painful path. 
There was a period of time that I didn't think I was going to be able to shoot anything. And I was going to have to go back to his agency and tell him this embarrassing story to obviously never work again for them. Now, even though they knew, seeing the picture, that it turned out right, they were hanging on every word that I was saying. I made sure I took my time and let them feel what I was feeling. They couldn't get enough. I then described the end of the game when that image was made. Usually, if I'm in good health, I leave my spot to rush back to the photo room, transmit the images as quickly as possible, and get out of there and beat the traffic. But I was in so much pain that I just sat there. I let the crowd file out, and I just waited. But while I sat there, the team announced the three stars. It's when they say who the three top players of the game are, and the players come back on the ice, the house lights are shut off, and it's nothing but a spotlight on them. It's a pretty cool visual. And Sidney Crosby was awarded the top star for the game. And with nothing but a spotlight on him, he skated onto the ice, spun around, waved his stick towards the crowd, and happened to look right at me. And I fired one frame. A month later, Crosby got hit in the mouth, had teeth knocked out, and went out of commission. But after that, he came back better than ever, and Sports Illustrated did a cover story about Sidney Crosby. My picture was the two-page picture inside for that story. Also, that night when I went to transmit, I didn't even think that much of the image. I was contracted to send 20 images to the agency, and I had sent 19. I chose that one for the 20th, and that was the photo they selected. The bride and her parents sat with their mouths wide open. They looked at each other, then they looked at me. Then they looked at the photograph again. We want you for our wedding, she declared. Not surprisingly, I kept that image and that magazine in the briefcase. It became routine that near the end of the meeting, I would say, do you want to see something cool? One night, during a meeting with a bride and her dad on the second floor of the Galleria Mall, I asked the same question again. By now, I had this story down. I knew all the details, I figured out what made people gasp, and I knew which words to emphasize. It was almost like it was part of a show. The dad, a highly successful attorney who was really hard to impress, looked towards his daughter and gave a mafia-like nod. If you're good enough for the penguins, he declared, while reaching into his pocket, you're good enough for my daughter. He pulled out his checkbook and handed me a $6,000 check. It took me six years to make $20,000 in photography. It took me less than two weeks to make more than $20,000 with one photograph. That's the power of storytelling and the greater power of using storytelling to convey a feeling that allows you to stand out in a sea of sameness. Going into those meetings, our company was just one of many. But after hearing that story, we immediately formed a connection that not only won them over, but won them over in a way that they were so excited to not only have us as a wedding photographer, but they wanted one who used the same camera to shoot their pictures that was used to photograph their sports heroes. Those were the words that one bride used to her parents, literally moments before they walked down the aisle. They wouldn't have known that without these stories. We would have been just like everyone else. So as we end this, I want you to think about that for yourself. What are the stories that make you stand out? Not facts, not figures, not numbers. What are the stories that you can tell, even if it's just one, that show why you're different than everybody else? And if you can convey that and you can connect with that, you can open up worlds that you never thought to be possible. Thank you as always for listening to the Total Life Freedom Podcast. We are here to make you better every day because this is your life on freedom. Thank uh-huh.